Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation, brought to you in association with the Reorient Journal, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Now, I've realized that over the past couple of episodes, I haven't actually really introduced myself on uh, those episodes, so I'll just go ahead and do it now. I'm uh, Dr. Hizamir. I'm a lecturer at the School of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Leeds, and I'm the producer for Network Reorient. Now, today's episode is the second part of uh, a single recording which was done um, last year. The first episode of that was released last season and was called War for Peace, Essentialism and the Political. Now, I highly recommend listening to that one first if you haven't yet, as a lot of the ideas in that come into um, this one. Um, And actually, speaking of that, this episode actually starts with me trying to back myself out of a contradiction based on um, previous uh, discussion, but I think we explain it well enough uh, here as well. So I'll let listeners obviously decide how successful I am in that venture. Um, following this, myself and Murad Idris then go on to discuss War for Peace in the work and thought of Al-Farabi and Sayyid Qutb. Okay, now we're gonna go into a bit of a, a bit of a um, <laughs> almost contradictory thing, I think. Um, but I'm gonna try my best to not make it a contradiction. Um, so we've just spoken about how essentialism works, and you know the instability of identity. But again, as I've said earlier, your book is very extensive. So I had to choose two thinkers um, to um, choose obviously, because we have time constraints and what have you. And it was really interesting that my first idea was to go into the, just choose the Islamic thinkers, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. But then I realized my formulation of this flies in the face of your adoption of Roxanne Eubin's view. And I think, mm-hmm. again, this is in the introduction, if I remember correctly, or again, maybe in the first chapter, um, and even your own explanation in the epilogue of the instability of identity. Mm-hmm. But in order to rectify this, I would say that I recognize the need for temporary foundations. And the mm-hmm. point is to recognize that they are temporary and unstable and subject to change. So mm-hmm. inshallah, we'll move forward with that. And I'll ask my next question. How did Al-Farabi understand war and peace? Now, in particular, there's a couple of things which I found really interesting in your treatment of uh, Al-Farabi. And these are his dispositions, his mm-hmm. political lexicon, and the typology he had of separating cities into warlike and peaceful. So if you could answer in relation to these three things, uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, so uh, so first maybe let me say that uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I try to do in the book, and this is where you're right to know uh, the uh, affinity between... Uh, 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 what I'm doing and uh, Roxanne Eubin's work, uh, where you know I uh, very explicitly and directly am uh, drawing on uh, some of the stuff that she's done, um, mm. and uh, it's it's deliberate the the three chapters that have uh, 
uh, you know, what we might call the Muslim thinkers, uh, so Farabi, mm. Ibn Khaldun, and Sayyid Qutb, uh, are all chapters uh, that are about uh, certain kinds of uh, pairings. Uh, so Al-Farabi with uh, Aquinas, and then reading both in relation to the question of uh, just war, uh, Ibn Khaldun with Thomas Hobbes, and uh, reading both in relation to uh, the question of political foundings and uh, cycles of violence, and uh, Sayyid Qutb uh, with uh, Immanuel Kant, and uh, reading both in relation to the idea of a uh, 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 perpetual peace, but uh, a global peace, one that is uh, in some way uh, being negotiated in relation to uh, empire. So with each of the pairings, uh, uh, the, my aim was uh, to uh, not have uh, chapters that are like uh, the Muslim thinkers and others that mm. are the uh, Western thinkers, uh, but rather to try to unsettle uh, a lot of those categories, uh, also through the way that I'm reading these uh, different figures. And I think that your question about reading Al-Farabi in relation to, uh, you know, as, as a philosopher of war, first and foremost, mm -hmm. or as a theorist of war, in relation to dispositions, in relation to his political lexicon, um, and also the political lexicons, the, uh, or lexica, I guess, the uh, people would be using more broadly, and in relation to uh, the division that he proposes between different kinds of cities um, and the uh, different forms of violence that they may or may not use. Um, so uh, that, I think, gets to the uh, heart of it. Um, and Al-Farabi is an interesting figure for me to be working with here, uh, in part because of the, let's say, controversies uh, surrounding how one should uh, read him. And I have mm. a couple of footnotes in uh, the chapter on uh, Al-Farabi and Aquinas where uh, you know, I draw attention to some of this uh, in terms of the, you know, there's all sorts of assumptions about what he intended, what he didn't intend, what it means that he was writing as a Muslim thinker, did he fear persecution because he was Muslim, and all sorts of other Orientalist uh, fantasies and nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so that's uh, part of the world that I'm writing uh, against, uh, I would say. Uh, the... At the same time, or by the same token, reading Al-Farabi as a, uh, a philosopher of war, um, I think means looking at, uh, I'm, I'm going to stick with the uh, example of the cities of war and the cities of peace and the kind of uh, uh, division that he uh, proposes there. Mm. Um, so it's interesting because throughout two of his texts, um, there's uh, uh, The uh, Virtuous City, uh, and there's um, um, the, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, there's uh, uh, The Virtuous City, and then there's uh, his uh, summary of Plato's laws, and, mm. um, and then there's uh, uh, Governance of the City. Uh, or a text that I translate as uh, governance of the city. Uh, people sometimes translate it as political regime, but uh, I don't know what uh, that uh, means. I don't think it means anything. Um, mm. A 
across these texts, there are moments where Farabi describes the use of uh, violence as a either as a means or as an end, and uh, uh, the the key point for me is in one of these texts he says and then there are there's this one group of people who love peace and they treat it as uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know the be all the end all the most important thing in the world and uh, half of them wage war and I'm like but wait what mm. uh, so it's that moment where uh uh, you go from uh, the enumeration of different modes of violence, different uh, uh, ways of justifying it. Um, uh, to, and here's this one group where that's not the case, except that is the case. So what stands out for me is how the difference here is one of political lexicon. The difference mm. here is that you have this one group that... Uh, uh, treats peace as a uh, universal ideal. Uh, Al-Farabi himself at no point describes peace in these terms. Um, uh, so one that treats peace as a universal ideal and that rather than having a certain kind of uh, disposition, because uh, Al-Farabi's work as a whole uh, really does seem to be about describing the different dispositions that people have. Uh, here you end up with this one group that also seems to be describing people in terms of dispositions, right? So it's almost like a moment where the text is turning in on itself, where uh, uh, you have this one group that believes in peace, half of whom wage war, and who believe that they're the only ones who value or desire peace. Uh, and that particular group, I think, stands in or comes to describe, for us at least, it can come to stand in for the different justifications that you find in uh, Aquinas or Aquinas' modern interpreters in the just war uh, theory uh, tradition. Uh, those who uh, believe that... Uh, uh, peace is a universal moral ideal, but the uh, they or their wars or the wars that they champion are the only ones that um, can stand in for that or that can work towards that. Um, it's that mode of, it's not simply hypocrisy. It's something much deeper and much more troubling because it's structural. Uh, I think that's what reading a quiet, that's what reading Al-Farabi and reading Al-Farabi in relation to Aquinas, uh, brings into view how we can understand and destabilize or even deconstruct that idea of uh, 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 peace-loving, uh, peace-loving while waging war. Uh, how that is actually the mm. contradiction. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um. I think I want to sort of move on to a critique you have of Al-Farabi. Obviously, we've gone through a bit of a uh, discussion of his uh, work then, what you found a bit strange about it, that there's this group of people who love peace, but then half of them declare war, and it's like, well, how does this work? Mm -hmm. um, but I want to kind of bring in the just war theory mm -hmm. as well. And you mentioned this um, towards the end of the chapter on Al-Farabi, and Aquinas, 
uh, or towards the end of your section on Farabi in that uh, chapter, I should say, where you argue that the just war theory is based on intentions and motives. Mm-hmm. And you actually critique Al-Farabi on this basis as well. So could you explain this critique? Because for me, um, this critique has implications for more than just Al-Farabi the theorist and Al-Farabi the theorist of war. Obviously, a lot of uh, Islamic legal theory is also based on intentions and motives. So it'd be interesting to see where you take this critique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh... Let me preface it by saying that uh, the critique is not of uh, uh, the very idea of uh, intentions as a whole, or even the place mm. of intentions uh, in uh, uh, in law as a whole. That's a sort of much bigger topic, and certainly not yeah. intentions in uh, theology uh, as a whole. Uh, I mean, part of what's interesting to me uh, is that uh, certainly in Aquinas, the question of intentions is a the- is a thoroughly theological question, right? It's about mm-hmm. salvation. It's about the soul. It's about are you going to hell or not? Um, and what happens through uh, the modern reading of Aquinas is a kind of... Uh, uh, I don't think the word secularization captures it uh, uh, per se, but something kind of like that, where uh, now intentions become uh, the way in which we're going to determine the uh, uh, justness of uh, an entire uh, uh, set of not only political um, uh, actions, but uh, political actors as a whole. Um, that's the piece of it that I find uh, both perverse and uh, uh, deeply uh, troubling because what uh, what I think we end up with, and I think we've seen this, we saw this uh, uh, in uh, American deployments of just war theory, uh, not only mm. in Afghanistan, not only in uh, uh, Iraq, uh, and uh, you know, not only in uh, the most recent, uh, set of uh, interventions and uh, um, uh, you know, drone strikes and uh, bombings, which very much were about you know American intentions uh, being uh, good and for the sake of human rights and democracy and you know all that. Um, but even prior, uh, the language of intentions, uh, you know, thoroughly saturated uh, American and European descriptions of their violent involvements and entanglements in uh, our uh, uh, regions uh, of the world. So uh, uh, that's that's sort of where I'm coming from when uh, I'm looking at the relationship between intentions and uh, violence. Um, And the way that an appeal to good intentions ends up... uh, uh, justifying, sanitizing, uh, excusing all sorts of violence. The reason that this is problematic isn't just because people lie, uh, which Mm. they do, but also because of the presumption that intentions are legible, the presumption that Mm. they are extractable, translatable, transparent. You know, we want to talk theology. One of the uh, 
uh, uh, one of the big lessons shared across multiple faiths, uh, and it's not the only lesson, and there are contradictions, of course, uh, uh, but one of the lessons is that uh, you, uh, your own intentions aren't going to be immediately obvious to you, right? Sometimes your intentions are, are things that you're not going to know, period, and they're things that only uh, uh, God knows. Um, other times it's the uh, uh, your intentions are things that you need to sit and reflect on in order to truly ascertain and yet you look at just war theory in its popular deployments and you wouldn't get a nick of that, right? Um, mm. Similarly, you look at the way that Aquinas and Al-Farabi talk about uh, the uh, different uh, intentions uh, that uh, groups have. And uh, uh, apparently it's something that is simply known. Um, and you know that is news to me, uh, I guess is sort of the most... Uh, uh, direct way of uh, putting that. Um, alongside that question of knowability, there's the question of translation. So mm -hmm. how a belief in someone else's intentions or one's own intentions, and there's a whole politics that we can talk about there in terms of uh, uh, who, uh, who's allowed to read uh, the intentions of others, not only uh, their own. And that's, of course, uh, uh, it takes the form of a colonial uh, politics today as it has for the last uh, 100 years. Um, but it's also that uh, the, uh, these intentions then are translated into some other field, whether it's the juridical field, so that then using these complex uh, presumptions about what one wanted to do or intended to do and did not intend, uh, how that then gets translated into uh, um, a uh, legal principle about uh, uh, the justness of a particular kind of war or a particular kind of vi violence. So that's all to say there is no immediacy there it's all mediated and yet mm. the modes of mediation the steps the translations the uh, uh untranslatabilities those are all uh pushed out of you um and it's not to say that aquinas and farabi are responsible for uh what's going on now but rather that thinking with them, thinking against them, helps bring a lot of these kinds of questions into view, especially since Aquinas in particular, and in some cases Al-Farabi, are treated by uh, contemporary scholars as theorists of just war. Mm. Mm. Okay. It's, in it's just interesting to think about the ramifications of all this for, as you say, theology, legal studies, and everything like that is it's fascinating but obviously that's a discussion for a different time um what i want to do now is i want to uh, fast forward a couple of centuries and i want to <laughs> go to Sayyid Qutb um because i think your treatment of Sayyid Qutb is absolutely fascinating um yeah, and you, you say quite early in your treatment of him that you want to read him as an anti-colonial theorist amongst other things and that your reading of him as an anti-colonial theorist is closely linked to what you cast as his reconceptualization of peace. 
So I'd want to ask, how then does he reconceptualize peace? And how is this then linked to an anti-colonial thrust? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so the, the interpretation that I give of Qutb is one that uh, some people have found uh, uh, what? Uh, it has upset some people, uh, I guess. If there's like one part of the book that seems to upset people, it's uh, Sayyid Qutb. Um, yeah, mm. So be it. That, that's so, shocking. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, who, I, 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 I never would have suspected this when uh, some, mm. uh, <laughs> so I mean, I was shocked as well when you told me just now. Yeah, right? Uh, so <laughs> so Sayyid Qutb, uh, you know, listeners uh, may or may not know, Sayyid Qutb is generally considered one of the foundational thinkers of the Muslim Brotherhood, a central theorist for what sometimes is called Islamism, though, of course, I don't know what that term itself means. Um, uh, uh, and he is, uh, yeah, he was writing in the 19, uh, late 1940s and 1950s. He was executed by the Egyptian state and the writings of his, that people generally go to are, um, his uh, prison writings, um, not all of which were written in prison, um, but you know, mm -hmm. the bulk of them was in prison and revised in prison. And this is a book called, uh, Ma'alim fi tariq or signposts, milestones along the road, and his uh, Quranic uh, commentary uh, uh, in the shade of the Quran or Fithul al Quran. Mm. Uh, the texts of his that I go to, some of them, you know, people know, people have been reading for a while, like uh, you know, his uh, book on social justice from 1948, uh, 1949. Um, uh, but then it's also a bunch of articles that he wrote. Uh, in different journals, uh, especially uh, Al-Risala. Um, and I'm doing a lot more work on uh, these journals uh, and on uh, Sayyid Qutb uh, during this period uh, right now, actually, uh, since oh, okay. a fortuitous uh, question in that way. <laughs> uh, this is uh, fresh on my mind right now. Um, yeah, so when we think about Qutb and uh, his relationship to uh, colonialism, uh, uh, like I said, there's... Uh, uh, the conventional and you know uncontroversial statement is that uh, uh, you know he was a post-colonial thinker, but the implications of that and his own understanding of colonialism and the relationship of his writings to colonialism and to anti-colonial movements, all of that has tended to just fall out of contemporary analyses and contemporary discussions. And that's what I'm bringing back into the uh, conversation. Um, and I'm not the only one. Uh, there's uh, a, a really uh, excellent book, I think, by uh, Ibrahim Abu Rabia that uh, has a couple of chapters uh, on Qutb during this period that uh, uh, really, I think, uh, uh, do a brilliant uh, job of drawing out uh, similar sets of uh, dynamics. Um, Part of what I highlight in this chapter is that uh, Qutb theorized uh, the uh, possibility of a Muslim federation or a Muslim mm. bloc. And uh, uh, this is a uh, mode of uh, political uh, engagement that uh, he uh, is not usually... Uh, uh, you know, read in relation to, uh, 
but if we, uh, his, his argument basically was that uh, because of capitalism, because of colonialism, and um, because of uh, uh, the different wars that uh, the different European and American powers were waging uh, all over the world, uh, especially uh, against uh, uh, non-European uh, peoples, uh, the the only way to assure uh, peace is uh, for there to be a block or a federation uh, that would stand in the way of this kind of aggression. Uh, so in that sense, it's a very directly and explicitly anti-colonial, uh, uh, a very explicitly uh, anti-colonial theorization of uh, 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 a, a Muslim uh, 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 mode of politics, uh, specifically mm. a Muslim bloc. And uh, one the throughout the articles that he was writing uh, during this period, uh, it is one that um, uh, very explicitly thinks about the formation of the colonized and the anti-colonial Muslim subject. What I mean by this, and this is what I'm working on now, uh, okay, sort of extending the book to some extent. Um, Kotob was a theorist of Orientalism. That's something that's not usually recognized. By this, I mean mm. not that he thought Orientalists were uh, a, a problem, and that's sort of the end of it, but rather that across his writings. He says, Here are, here's the relationship between the Orientalists and um, uh, the uh, Imperialists, and uh, the Orientalists and uh, the Missionaries. Uh, so this is long before Orientalism as a, uh, a critical mode of uh, analysis became a common uh, term. Uh, um, uh, in the 1970s. This is uh, Qutb writing in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Uh, and here he is theorizing Orientalism. Similarly, mm. he, uh, uh, along those lines, says, and, you know, what kind of Muslim people does Orientalism desire? What does it do to the... Uh, uh, capacity for uh, militant resistance. Uh, and he says it kills the seeds of uh, resistance. Uh, but also what modes of narrating history does it then uh, dictate for the colonized? Who are the protagonists and who are the uh, uh, minor figures in these kinds of uh, histories? Mm. So that's uh, that's that's a very different, say, Qutub than uh, the one that uh, uh, is common both in uh, Islamic studies and in political theory. Uh, we, and, you know, we could say the same exact thing about his analysis of capitalism. We can say the same thing about his analysis of missionaries. Um, and none of this is to say that his analyses are correct or even that they are useful today, but rather mm -hmm. is to say that uh, we should be reading these diagnostically. Why is it that Sayyid Qutb is uh, simply not recognized, not acknowledged, not seen as someone who was theorizing 
colonialism, anti-colonialism, capitalism, the politics of knowledge production, the post-colonial state, and all of these other configurations and constellations. And instead, Sayyid Qutb, the theorist of jihad, sharia, and, mm. uh, uh, and Islamic uh, uh, caliphate, right? Uh, I think that there's a very uh, uh, important ideological structure at play here. One that, uh, ironically enough, Sayyid Qutb himself in the early 1950s was pointing to. Right, and it's one mm. that, that, that demands a particular choreography in which some thinkers are, uh, you know, uh, uh, conjured into uh, our discussions in order to perform particular roles, while uh, uh, the other things that they said, the other possible connections and uh, configurations and constellations, are ones that uh, can only appear as. Uh, uh, illegible as uh, ungrammatical, and that's if they appear at all. Mm. Okay, it's always interesting to uh, uh, think about the haunting of other possibilities, as it were, or the uh, other possibilities as a haunting of what we see as, you know, say, the jihadist or the Islamic caliphate guy, as you um, so uh, brilliantly put it. So, what I want to do now is you mentioned that. You know, we shouldn't see Qutb's, um, you know, writings, even if we are to, you know, take him out of this view that, you know, has been given to him as the doyen of jihadism and stuff like that, um, that we shouldn't necessarily take it that it's correct or right for our time. So one thing that I want to talk about in relation to this, then, is about the position of the state in Sayyid Qutb. And how he understands this term, because it's interesting as an anti-colonialist mm -hmm. that he seems to accept the idea of the state. Mm -hmm. So would Qutb actually work in a world without nation states, which themselves, especially in Africa, the Middle East, well, everywhere apart from Europe, mm -hmm. uh, are themselves, well, even in Europe, you could say, are a colonial invention. So how, how would that work? So, oh, would it work even? Sorry, would be yeah. the question. Yeah, I mean, this is where uh, Qutb is interesting because he, uh, along with a set of other thinkers writing you know, uh, around this uh, uh, time period uh, across the global south, uh, uh, he's a critic of the post-colonial state even before the post-colonial state has really been kicked into gear, right? So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he's... Uh, uh, and, and he talks about it in uh, at least two different registers. This is also to distinguish perhaps more strongly even between this Qutb of the late 40s, early 50s, and uh, then the uh, prison ratings, uh, which, which I think are uh, dealing with a different kind of uh, 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 relation to the state. Um, uh, because there it's about um, a state that's actively uh, an enemy, whereas here it's the state as something to be overcome. Uh, so those are slightly different configurations. Um, during this period, he says, you know, the, uh, the, on the one hand, uh, his call for a kind of federation is all about transcending the state. He says, you have all these uh, states and all these mini states and, uh, 
um, they, they wage war against one another. They uh, uh, are uh, uh, making it possible for uh, uh, European uh, powers to do whatever they like all around uh, the world. Mm. Um, and that's where a, a unified bloc, a kind of federation, a kind of, uh, you know, Immanuel Kant's uh, federation, but um, uh, with a, uh, a willingness, uh, an explicit willingness to police the globe, uh, let's say, um, the, uh, that's, uh, that's what's missing. So it's not a state, but rather, I think at one point in the book, I call it an empire by another. Mm, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's one. But then at the same time, when you go deep into his critiques of, of the post-colonial state, uh, I mean, dude is using the language of dependency theory, right? So uh, mm. he says uh, the British have uh, captured uh, the uh, the following sets of institutions in the state, particularly those that have to do with finance, the economic sector, and the treasury, uh, as well as ones that have to do with education. And the whole point is then to have colonialism without colonists. Uh, that's uh, uh, where the European power can simply withdraw its own people because it can rest assured that uh, the, as he calls them, the uh, the uh, uh, the dark English, uh, by which he means uh, the uh, Egyptians who. Uh, uh, have been trained to uh, idealize uh, and idolize uh, uh, European modes of uh, being in the world and also uh, Europe itself, that they're just going to keep that structure in play, right? So you've got, mm. you've got those kinds of critiques coming together in his conceptualization of uh, the state as something that needs to be overcome and the state as a... Uh, uh, part of that uh, uh, set of institutional apparatuses that allow uh, colonialism, capitalism, and uh, their kinds of violence to persist as though they are completely uh, normal. Okay. Um, I think with that, we'll um, leave it there. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Idris for such an interesting um, discussion and I hope inshallah when uh, your further work on Qutub comes out we can invite you back and have a further discussion on that No, Thank, thank you, you very much, much. No, Thank you for having me, I uh, appreciated this uh, uh, tremendously and uh, it was a lot of fun to be in conversation with you oh, Thank you This is an episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes, and please leave a like and a rating.